So that's Psalm 2, starting at verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's Acts chapter 18, starting at verse 24. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the spirit, in spirits, fervent in spirit, he spoke and talked accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Then, when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in, to speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue, and for about three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, 
he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them, and it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. What is required in such situations where rapid and wholesale advance of the gospel takes place? At the close of each section of the book of Acts, we find a short piece on what you might call matters of growth. Jason's very determined that I shouldn't go on too long. (laughs) What is required in, in situations where rapid and wholesale growth of the gospel takes place? Now, at the close of each section of the book of Acts, what we find is a short piece on what you might call matters of growth. Uh, things that need to be sorted out or matters that arise as the gospel advances apace. I guess it's no surprise that we have that kind of, it's more than a tidying up exercise, but we have that sort of thing being pointed out to us by Luke, the author of Acts. One of my joys uh, of being uh, in the job that I'm in is I get to go to a lot of weddings. I love weddings and often get to go to receptions. And yesterday, I was sat next to a former senior army officer who'd led his battalion in Iraq in the Second War in Iraq. Uh, And he told me that in uh, any period of substantial, significant military advance, one of the keys is reorganization. In fact, that is the cry that goes out on any battlefield or training area. Once an objective is taken, everybody must reorganize. And I guess the same is so in many other spheres. Any business people, you know, your business goes through a period of rapid advance, you need a period of kind of reorganization. Any governing body needs a civil service able to kind of organize and reorganize. When a goal is scored or a try, the first thing you have to do is to get your defenses in order. That's the most likely time for somebody else to score. And so it's no surprise that with this rapid advance of the Christian gospel in the book of Acts, at the end of each section of the book, we're given a kind of a matter of organization. So the first section runs from chapter 1 through 6. The last verses at the beginning of chapter 6 
all have to do with the priority of the word of God. There's been rapid advance. You must make sure, even when all sorts of other things arise as issues in a growing church, the word remains central. Uh, The second major section of Acts, chapter 6 through 9. Chapter 9, we have the ministry of the apostle Paul kind of underscored and described and uh, shown to be authentic. As the gospel advances, here is the man whose teaching is going to be right front and center in the whole of the gospel advance, the Apostle Paul. Chapters 9 through 12, chapter 12 at the end of that section has the persecution of the church, even in a period of persecution. You can be sure that the gospel will continue to advance. And then chapters 12 through 15, the end of chapter 12 through 15, chapter 15 has the famous um, council where they council at Jerusalem, where they discuss how are we going to deal with all these believers from radically different cultures coming into the church? What matters in terms of their cultural practice? And what should we lay to one side and what should we keep central? So we find this at the end of every major section. No surprise. Ask anybody who's in any growing organization. That's what you expect to find. But Luke is concerned that we realize certain issues in periods of gospel advance have to be dealt with. And today, well, you can see from your cards there that I hope you've got on your seat with this very dinky little map. And we're following the yellow line. We move to the orange next week. But the moment we're on the yellow line and we can see that the gospel has advanced from the three individuals who look rather odd. We start here, Paul, Silas and Timothy, top right. And it's gone all the way into Macedonia, down into Achaia, through Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth, Athens, Athens, Ephesus, and Paul has now headed back, arrow, right the way across to Caesarea, far right, and then up into Antioch. And the gospel has advanced across this huge, huge area. The last verse of our reading, so mightily grew the word of Jesus and triumphed. But following a period of such radical advance, what's required? Well, uninstructed instructors are instructed. That's what we have this week, Apollos. Unconverted so-called believers are converted. Uh, That's what we have in Ephesus in chapter 19. And then unchristian pagan practices are abandoned. Let's start with Apollos. Verse 24 through 28 of chapter 18, chart the straightening out of Apollos by a a couple of people who we met last week called Aquila and Priscilla. And you can see with what glowing terms Apollos is described in verse 24 through 26. A Jew named Apollos, a native Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was eloquent. He was competent. He had been instructed. He was fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Eloquent, the word is learned or gifted. Competent, the word is powerful, strong, and mighty. Fervent, the word is literally hot, boiling. Faithful, he taught accurately. He must have been quite a guy. Had there been the World Wide Web, he would have had a following in the millions for sure. And in periods of significant growth, there have been people like that. 
He came from Alexandria, which is the north coast of Africa. You can see it there on the map, down in the bottom, in the south there. He came from Alexandria, which was one of the centers of the world's leading universities and had one of the largest, if not the largest, library in antiquity. He was an Oxbridge boy. He had been to Harvard. He was PR trained. He was celebrity preacher material. But he only knew the baptism of John. That is, he'd only been taught about repentance. He'd not been taught the need to receive the one whom John pointed to, to receive the Lord Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus's, benefiting from the Holy Spirit, the radical rebirth that comes through the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So he's been commanded to repent, to turn around. He's listened to the preaching of John. He might even have called himself a disciple of John. He'd not yet become a disciple of Jesus. Remember what John himself said. I baptize you with water. Among you stands one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John could just get you wet. It was a human thing. Turn around. The king is coming. Repent. Jesus comes, and he, why? He baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He washes us clean for the forgiveness of our sins. He floods us with the Holy Spirit, and new life from God begins from within. It's what John pointed towards. Here, then, is Apollos. But here are Aquila and Priscilla. That's a bloke and his wife. Aquila's a bloke. We met them last week. They had fled from Rome under the persecution of Claudius, most likely in 49 AD. They ended up in Corinth, where they had housed Paul and given him work. For the time that they were living and working alongside Paul, they would have had the best theological education going. Interesting that they were theologically educated whilst doing the equivalent of stacking shelves in Tesco's. Verse 26 is so striking. Just look at it. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now, wouldn't you have loved to have been a fly on the wall? P&A Ministries. What a couple Aquila and Priscilla must have been. It can't have been easy to correct a man like Apollos. How do you think they raised the subject? I would imagine with a degree of trepidation. They must have been quite courageous. Apollos, I think you may be getting this wrong. It's not easy to be corrected if you're a man like Apollos with quite a following. How do you think he received it? He must have been pretty humble. It does show, doesn't it, a considerable level of tact and a great deal of humility. Tact and diplomacy on the part of Aquila and Priscilla, unless they just went and said, you're absolutely useless, you've got it completely wrong, which I don't think they did. And quite a bit of humility on the part of Apollos. But what a result. Look at verse 27. When he wished to cross back over to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him, and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was the Jesus. What a bloke he must have been to have, as it were, on your side. 
Now he's been corrected by PA Ministries. Well, we've considered the value of Priscilla and Aquila. We've seen the benefit of the way they operate. And what a wonderful result it is. Isn't it magnificent to have people such as these? You know, there are people, as I mentioned last week, in churches around the country who have benefited from serious Bible teaching and gone out into other churches and made it their business to get alongside the Christian workers there, even if sometimes the Christian workers there are not entirely clear or as clear as the individuals who've gone into the churches where they've gone to serve. And these individuals have got alongside teachers like that and helped them to understand the gospel more clearly. I can think of one individual, I won't mention his name, but he used to be up in the north of England, and two young people who'd been trained as associates here at St. Helens and then gone off to theological college end up working alongside him. And through their tactful engagement with him, they enabled him to see the gospel more clearly. And as a result, he's become a fine Christian worker, has moved to a different church, which actually most of us here would be familiar with. I'm not going to tell you where it is, where he is doing an outstanding work. And when I bumped into him, he said, oh, it's wonderful to have those two lads who came up. And they showed me and helped me what humility and what tact and grace. It's possible to get it hopelessly wrong. Especially in a congregations like we have at St. Helens, where people kind of get really enthusiastic about the word of God, really get well taught, and then go somewhere else and don't find quite the same. And it's possible not quite to have the tact and diplomacy of an Aquila and a Priscilla. Both my sisters became Christians here, or rather were grown in their Christian faith here in the 1980s. And as a result, we used to have a trail of people from St. Helens who would come and spend the weekend with my parents. And my parents would recount, um, almost to their dying day, my mother's still alive, but she remembers it well, one particular individual who, I'm ashamed to say, came down and straightened out the vicar, good and proper, he told him. He didn't win any points amongst the congregation or with a vicar. Possible to get it hopelessly wrong. So there will be uninstructed instructors who find themselves being... It's inevitable with the growth of the Christian gospel that there will be people like Apollos and so forth. But also, the uninstructed instructors result in unconverted or misinformed so-called disciples, and that's where we go next. From verse 1 of chapter 19, we see that Paul has already begun his third missionary journey. So, following the yellow on your map here, looking at Antioch, middle right-hand corner, Paul has gone back down to Jerusalem, up to Antioch, and he's now determined to head off on his third journey. So, verse 1, it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. So he traveled all the way across Galatia and into Asia, which incidentally is where he wanted to be, if you remember, at the very opening of this section of Acts. He wanted to go down into Asia, but he was prevented 
And now he finds himself in the very place where he had wanted to go all the way back in chapter 16. What is so interesting but is often overlooked is the way that Paul retraced his steps again and again and again in order to strengthen the church and to encourage believers. You know, so many people see Paul, don't they, as a kind of pioneer gospel worker who goes into the city all guns blazing and then fires off the gospel and then moves on to the next place. Actually, painstakingly, he goes back again and again and again and again to strengthen believers, to encourage believers. Paul was a church builder just as much as he was a church planter. But as Paul traveled through the interior, he arrives over there in Ephesus, as you can see on the western coast of Asia. And he found 12 so-called disciples who clearly had heard of the summons to repentance but had not heard of the offer of forgiveness and new birth. Verse 2, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Into what then were you baptized? Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who is to come after him, that is Jesus. Now, here's a thing. The bloke I was sitting next to at supper last night, this retired brigadier in the British Army, had served in Iraq in the second campaign there. And he said, completely volunteering it, I didn't prompt him. Do you know, one of the most interesting things in Iraq was bumping into all the Mandeans. The Mandeans? No, I'd never heard of the Mandeans. Who were they? Oh, disciples of John the Baptist. And so I came home. I said, you're going to feature in the sermon tomorrow big time. Why didn't you come along? You'll have a starring role, both at the beginning to talk about the need for reorganization and organizing thing when the great gospel advanced, but also to talk about the Mandeans. There are still today considerable numbers of people in Iraq, in Iran, in Turkey, who consider themselves today, to this day, to be disciples of John the Baptist. They think John the Baptist was the son of God. Now, we're not told if these individuals were taught by Apollos or not. Their error appears to be the same as his. And just as P&A had corrected Apollos, Paul corrects the twelve. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. They began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Now, we have to be very careful here. These verses have been used alongside other verses in Acts to suggest that for every Christian disciple, a normal pattern of Christian development is for there to be a second initiation experience whereby having begun by believing in Jesus, it is normal then at a later stage of Christian development to receive a full initiation into full true Christian experience and immersion in the Holy Spirit for power-packed Christian living. Kind of two-tier Christianity. It's known in the teaching of Pentecostalism as a second blessing or 
higher life theology. You can understand it. Have you stepped into the higher life yet? Have you had the second blessing yet? And in such schemes, the mark of having received the Spirit is speaking in tongues and prophecy. We'll come to that in just a moment. Frequently, those who have not received those gifts of speaking in tongues and prophecy are understood not to have the full benefit of the Holy Spirit at work within them. A kind of second-class Christian traveling in economy as opposed to the club class, power-packed, filled with the Holy Spirit. It may well be that there are a number here who've experienced that kind of teaching. And I want to say it's a wretched way of thinking that is profoundly misconceived because it does provide great division in the church, precisely the opposite of what the Holy Spirit brings. As it suggests, there are some amongst us who are living the power-packed life and others who are altogether more ordinary. The suggestion that there is a second experience of initiation for true power-packed Christian living cannot be so. It is not possible to believe in Jesus and follow him as Lord without the Spirit having entered into us and begun his work within. It simply is not possible. Remember what Jesus said to um, to, uh, Nicodemus in John's Gospel in chapter 3. No one can enter the kingdom unless they have been born again through water and the Spirit. So you can't enter the kingdom unless you have the Spirit. You either are in or you're not in. And so when in verse 1 he talks about having found disciples, they're disciples of John. They're not disciples of Jesus at this stage. They haven't even started following Jesus, and we see that in verse 6. Just flick over a few pages, would you, to 1137. 1137, you should find yourself in Romans chapter 8. 1137. If you've not got the same kind of Bible as I have, it's Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. Look at, it's really the second half of this verse that I want us to notice. You, however, are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit, that is your Christian, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So do you see this kind of idea developed, and it's often this passage that is used that suggests it's the normal experience for there to be some people walking around who are really Christian but haven't got the Holy Spirit powerfully at work as second-class citizens, as it were, is simply unfounded. It doesn't work. You can't be a Christian without the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. And you can see here that they're described as being baptized into John's baptism and not yet having turned to follow Jesus. And this kind of teaching, you find it in the whole scheme of the Alpha material. If you've been on an Alpha weekend, suggests that some Christians, well, they only have the pilot light of the boiler burning and you actually need to have this second experience. And then this is an old Alpha book, but it's here right there in the ch- first chapter on the Holy Spirit. And then you'll be able to enter into full power-packed Christian living. It's profoundly divisive 
and unhelpful. It may well you've been exposed to that sort of teaching. And if you have, I'm really sorry because it makes you feel second class. We either are followers of Jesus or we're not. Jesus commands us to turn to him. He offers us his forgiveness and he promises that as we surrender to him, the very moment we surrender to him, we are filled with his Holy Spirit. We're truly in. There is no first and second class. So the result of the uninstructed instruction of Apollos and others who had followed his teaching is unconverted disciples of John who need to hear the Christian gospel clearly and to be converted. And as a mark that they have now received the Holy Spirit, they start speaking in tongues and prophesying. And speaking in tongues in Acts is described in detail in chapter 2. And there at Pentecost, speaking in tongues is speaking in recognizable human language. So in Acts 2, the disciples spoke in recognizable human language. And later in chapter 10, another key moment when the Holy Spirit comes for the first time on the Gentiles, again, they spoke in recognizable human language. Why? Because the Christian gospel is for all nations. And so you find people prophesying, that is speaking the word of God, and then speaking in recognizable human languages the praises of God to all who will hear. And in this unusual circumstance, these 12 individuals uniquely, who, if you like, been left behind, their original Mandeans still following John the Baptist, as an indication that they have come through to true faith, receive this ability, and they start speaking of God and his praise in their own language. Now, I don't know what you think about this, but in a sense, the issue doesn't matter too much. I spent quite a bit of time on the issue because so much difficulty is caused by it. But the issue, in a sense, is less relevant. The point is that with this rapid advance of the gospel... We are going to find uninstructors, instructors who need instructing, and we're going to find believers who need straightening out. We may well find ourselves in that category. And may I suggest with some of you leading Christian unions in your schools, and some of you leading Christian unions in your workplaces where you have a vast array of Christians and some not Christian from different backgrounds, we'll find exactly that. Here at St. Helens, we'll find precisely the same thing. People coming with all sorts of different understandings who need graciously, gently, kindly I mean, straightening out, it doesn't sound quite right. It sounds rather kind of arrogant, but who need being brought to the word and shown what true gospel living is. And that's what we are all about. That's why we encourage people to join our small groups and so forth. But if you're leading a Christian union in a school or a workplace, you're going to find a lot of people like that. And it's beautiful the way it happens here, gently, graciously straightening people out. We've just got a couple of minutes then for Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And we begin to see then Ephesus. There we are on the map again. He's now arrived in Ephesus. Verses 9 through 12 find him ensconced in Ephesus for around two and a half years. Usual pattern, into the synagogue, turfed out on his ear. And then he goes to the lecture hall of Tyrannus. He's there in the middle of the day, the hottest time of the day. And there he speaks to anybody who will come to listen to him. And a heck of a lot of people do come to him, listen to him. This is the greatest metropolis of Asia 
It was the humming center of Asia, the capital. He'd originally wanted to go there back in chapter 16, but was prevented. It was a hotbed of magic and superstition, pagan idolatry and evil. I think it's quite hard for us to grasp just how grotesque it is to live in a pagan world where the Christian gospel has had no impact. Because we live in Britain, where the Christian gospel has had such an impact. But if you want something of a sense of how grim it is to live in a pre-Christian country, well, you can see it in verse 19. A number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. They counted the value of them. It came to 50,000 days' wages. I calculated that. 11 pounds an hour, I believe, is the minimum wage. Wage. Four and a half million pounds worth of books of pagan magic, witchcraft, and ugly slavery to evil and evil powers. What a day it must have been when the gospel took hold. And what radical change the gospel brought. Notice it was voluntary. I think this is where some Christians are mistaken. We think that we need to kind of enforce these things on a culture. And so there we are waving our kind of sign this petition and lobby your MP and all the rest. You're free to lobby your MP if you want. But this wasn't imposed on the culture. They turned to Jesus. They were then freed of the magic and witchcraft. And you see that happening again and again in culture after culture after culture as the gospel advances. The gospel advances. Yep. Untaught teachers need teaching. Unconverted disciples need converting. And then you will see pagan practices abandoned Big time as the gospel takes. I've got a whole host of examples here. One of my favorite books on my bookshelf was given to me by my granddad. He wouldn't let it out of his house. It's called England Before and After the Wesleys. And it charts life in England before the massive Christian revival under uh, John and Charles Wesley. And the radical change that came about voluntarily as the gospel took hold, uh, think of the abolition of slavery, which came about as a result of the gospel having taken hold. Well, I've got examples from Wales, which we're going to leave to one side, though it would be wonderful to try and make up some of the lost ground from last week. I, I think of uh, Tom Holland's Pax and the Roman Empire. I don't know if you've read that. I've been reading it for the last few months. I mean, it, when you think of what the Romans were like and the way they behaved, it is just pagan, grossly uncivilized, appalling for women, bestial in the literal sense of the word, utterly enslaving. The gospel took hold and changed the whole thing. But what about Iran? This week, through my uh, news feed, came this report. 50,000 mosques closed in Iran as Christianity spreads. Tehran, recent comments by a senior Iranian cleric that around 50,000 of Iran's 75,000 mosques are closed, highlights the growth of Christianity in Iran. 
What a radical change. Liberation from the enslaving evil of a satanic religion. Amazing. As mosques close, the gospel takes hold and people are liberated to start living human lives. Well, we just draw to a close. I kind of felt, oh, is all this going to be just a little bit banal and dull, a bit kind of civil service? You know, as we, sorry if you work in the civil service. Uh, we had the, the Welsh and the Australians last week. We might as well get the civil servants this week. But, uh, you know, it all just seems a bit mundane. But it isn't mundane at all. This is just the stuff of Christian growth. You start doing a gospel work in your school or university, in your workplace or whatever, and as the Lord blesses it, oh, you'll see workplaces, radic- workplaces radically changed and transformed. Old practices dropped, enslaving, dehumanizing behavior, abandoned. Oh, uninstructed instructors, instructed. And then unconverted believers in all sorts of strange things converted. We must draw to a close and uh, take a few questions. Apollos, was he wrong or just incomplete? Well, I mean, he was incomplete and therefore wrong, I think I'd have to say, but he was certainly incomplete. But what a guy, eh? What a guy. I mean, we must know people like that. There have been, if you think about kind of the, even the recent history of the Christian church, there have been people like that, haven't there, um, in all sorts of areas, who if, if only we'd been humble enough to listen. I, I mean, I didn't want to talk about myself but I, too much. I think actually congregations at St. Helens are as instrumental in the training of our preachers and future church leaders as, if you like, the St. Helens structures with, in terms of our associate scheme and so forth. Uh, and certainly as, as myself. I, I think you know, our congregations train. And I, I can remember as a young curate arriving here, some of you suffered under it, I'm afraid, but in 1995, being help, really helpfully straightened out you know, by people in the congregation um, who we were working alongside, graciously, kindly, gently. So, you know, I'm so thankful for that, and I hope this continues um, you know, I always think a congregation gets the preacher they deserve. That's a slight overstatement because sometimes things go horribly wrong in wonderfully, you know, ordered churches. But generally speaking, a congregation gets the preaching they deserve. And PNA, Priscilla and Aquila, were determined that the gospel go forward rightly. So it's a wonderful thing. Building on this related, but the next step, how might we tell the difference between an uninstructed teacher like Apollos, and an outright false teacher. Yeah, and isn't that helpful? That's why I think, you know, we need to read letters like Galatians carefully. And many of you will have heard me say this before, but in Galatians, there appear to be three audiences. So there are the false teachers who are dug in and determined. And you can see them here, can't you? As we've been going through Acts, we've got these... uh, uh, these, these Jews who are adamant that they're going to, and even Judaizing so-called Christians who are adamant that they're going to disrupt the work of Paul. And uh, there comes a point where somebody refuses to listen 
and continues. And we see that in the mainline denominations as well. So you've got those, and Paul says of them, I wish they would go and emasculate themselves, which incidentally is worse than castration. I won't go into details, but emasculation is worse than castration. I wish they would go and do that to themselves, he says. So that's pretty blunt, isn't it? But then you've got... um, at the Galatians themselves, where Paul says, oh, you foolish Galatians, I'm in the pains of childbirth for you all over again. I love you. And he's trying to win them. And then you've got Peter, Paul's um, kind of co-apostle, who Paul goes and reasons with. So we need a degree of sophistication, don't we, in the way we think about these things. But to go in kind of <laughs> high noon, all guns blazing, you know, is entirely wrong, isn't it? Uh, and, and you see PNA here doing precisely the opposite. Thinking of um, spirit-filled Christians, um, that sort of issue, how do we help fellow believers who feel they are not spirit-filled? Well, I think I want to take people again and again and again to what uh, an elderly Christian leader said to me when I was a very young Christian, take them to the precious promises of Jesus. That's a phrase from 2 Peter, the precious promises of Jesus. Take them to a place like Romans 8 uh, or to John 3, like I tried to do this evening. Um, uh, or um, to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Show them the promises that indicate that whatever our experience might be, the reality, and that's where solid ground is, the promises of God. That's where we find we put our feet on solid ground. So take them to the word of God, the promises of God. And in the study of the book of Acts, it's most important, I think, for those who want to push this kind of second experience. They find it very hard to kind of unravel but to show that the only times where we have this um, speaking of tongues and kind of moment on which so much they've been based are times where there is radical, groundbreaking, new conversion into, first of all, the Jews in Jerusalem and then into Gentile territory in Acts 10. And then here where people have simply, are simply not yet converted. Now, if you can look at each instance and show why you're being given this kind of audible, tangible um, uh, demonstration of the Spirit, that it's there to show the, the gospel is breaking into this, it's, it's a once-in-the-history-of-the-world moment when the gospel breaks in to the Jews at Jerusalem. The gospel now breaks in to the Gentiles. Never, ever, ever happened before. Uh, The gospel now breaks into these unconverted 12. And they're a small number. They're just 12. And it's by no means normative. But first, I'll take them to the great and mighty promises of God. Following on, if we are all spirit-filled Christians with the Holy Spirit, what should being spirit-filled look like for us at St. Helens. Yeah, yeah. Well, isn't it interesting that they speak in tongues and they prophesy? Now, prophesying is taking what God has revealed of himself and speaking it to somebody else. And speaking in languages is making plain the gospel that Jesus has revealed to other people in a language they will understand. 
And so in the book of Acts, the first thing you see people filled with the Spirit doing is speaking openly and plainly of the work of King Jesus. And so I want to say, you're here on a Tuesday evening. You're studying in, uh, in the book of um, Exodus. John or John Romans. or Romans. Whoops. Every, there's so many different things going on in the different evenings. But there you are. I'm so sorry. You're studying the book of John or Romans. Um, and there you are. You're prophesying to one another. And you're doing so in a language that people will understand. That is a mark of the Holy Spirit. So don't buy this sort of nonsense that you're only filled with the Spirit if you do something spooky that nobody can really understand. That is to diminish the Spirit and make him much, much smaller. He only operates in these kind of weird spheres. No, no, that's, I'm afraid, nonsense. The Spirit operates and he turns us outwards from ourselves. The other thing is that he is the Holy Spirit. And so the person who is filled with the Spirit begins to see radical life change in their own life and uh, to, to start to be concerned for holiness and purity to live a different life and all the practices that they used to be involved with you know whatever it might be um, that they know Jesus would not love begin to be dropped to one side and a new life lived what would you say an to that well yeah exactly and in if you go through acts and look where the spirit and a characteristic of a spiritual person is mentioned, boldness comes again and again and again, and persecution. Yeah, yeah. So those are the things that will mark a true yeah. spirit-filled Yeah, ministry. I mean, there's a very special word in the um, original language. I'm, you, you know, you're a boffin in these kind of things, Aaron, so you'd understand. But I, I sort of occasionally latch on to something like this um, after years of being told it. But there's a very special word which means to speak with courage. And it's a word that is used on very particular occasions. And that's the mark of somebody who's filled with the Spirit. They start speaking to other believers, to unbelievers. I've got a few questions which I'm going to have to try and combine. But there's a number about we're in a post-Christian society. Lots of us are trying to share the word in the workplace or in the world. A few say nothing happens. What should we conclude from that? And others are saying... If the word is going to make an impact, what will that then look like? Mm. Well, I don't think I want... I mean, the devil will want to tell you nothing happens. Um, and I think we have usually a different time phase to God. I don't know if you know about the, um, the work over at Asher, um, you know, amongst the Muslims just around the corner. You know, Rob and Becky have been working there for 18, 19 years and they went for the first 18 years praying, praying, praying. Nobody was converted for 18 years. Just suddenly, recently, a number of people have started to become and come along and some to be converted. So I think we tend to... You look at the work. Um, there's a lovely book called um, Living Field, Killing Fields about the gospel work in Cambodia before the big revival there. And you know, before Khmer Rouge and the huge persecution. You know, there were just individual American missionary families in one or two villages, and you'd see one family get converted, and then one family get converted, and then, then came the great Khmer Rouge and the big persecution, and then this radical turning to Jesus. I mean, think of Iran. Um, I worked in a school once where there were 100 at the Christian Union in a school of 800 it was fantastic. It was fantastic. But there have been years of work 
from people like you guys who are looking to try and start little Christian unions, praying away. So I think I want to say nothing happens. Who says? Who knows? You know, actually just the steady prayerful and you wait. I mean, look at China today and the vast number of Asian Christians all over the world. How did it begin? Just people praying, people praying, people praying, tiny, tiny, and then, sorry, that's another sound effect. You (laughs) see it just growing. You see it growing. What would you have seen when you were in Athens? You know, a few were persuaded, isn't that what he says? Mm. Tiny, doesn't look big. But actually, that's how God begins these mighty movements. And so I'd say stick at it, keep going, keep speaking, keep praying. And who knows? And you look at London, I mean, I've said this before, but in the 80s, you know, when I was coming along here, it was St. Helens, Holy Trinity Brompton, All Souls, possibly Westminster Chapel, and maybe a couple of other churches, you would have heard the Christian gospel. You want to hear the gospel today? It's you can't shake us. So many churches in London where they're preaching biblically and clearly. So, you know, but it's all been incremental, little incremental, little incremental, and gradually. So stick at it is my answer. That was only part of the question. That was great. Last question. Um, <laughs> I'm combining two questions, which are almost exactly the same. Somebody, well, two, at least two people here know, Luke, we know, is writing to build our confidence. Mm-hmm. How does this talk of straightening the church help to build our confidence in oh, Jesus? Absolutely. Because, Well, I mean, there's a whole kind of one-hour lecture in this, I think, which I'm not going to embark on. But what is he trying to build our confidence in? He, he, he's wanting to defend the gospel. Yeah, we've had a lot of that. Um, uh, absolutely. So we see a great deal of defense historically of the gospel. We, we see a great deal of defense of the, the content of the gospel. Um, and we're going to see in the weeks to follow a great defense of its kind of its standing in the world. So I think we can think, oh, certainty on a very narrow bandwidth. But Luke is wanting us to have certainty about the way in which the gospel advances mightily and triumphs. And to be confident that actually the straightening out of teachers is normal practice. And the, um, uh, you know, the finding people who aren't yet Christian in a church who actually find themselves then becoming Christian, that's, that's normal stuff. And then, you know, occasionally this kind of radical wholesale turning, that, that, that can be normal stuff. So I think that's what he's wanting to do. It's, it's not just a narrow, I feel more confident being a Christian. It's a much wider bandwidth. William, thank you. Ask me at tea if you want any, uh, or, or when we eat in just a moment, if you want any further questions. And I hope I covered a representative sample. There were more. If your question wasn't quite answered, do chat to William.